Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. A show about people, places, and misfortunate events. Welcome back to, I think, our last couple episodes of 2022 in January, in less than a month. The podcast is going to turn two years old. I think that that is super amazing. Wow. That is almost as consistent as anything I've ever done. Um, I don't think I've had a job consistently for that long ever. Are you kidding me? Damn. But yeah, milestones for the podcast. Very happy about that. Uh, we are going to finish up season three. I almost called it season two yeah. in the new year. We'll have a couple episodes then. Then, of course, I've got to take a break to study for the bar. Uniquely, right now when we're recording, I've just taken my last final for law mm. school. It has been a long 851 days. Dear God. Of education. It feels like yesterday I was graduating from Emerson right about this time. Cheers, Cheers to that to one. That. Cheers yeah. to the JD. Yeah. yeah. We are here to talk about today. It's going to be another hard name for me to pronounce. I do this to myself every time. Oh, shit. Princess Mishal bint Fad bin Muhammad. She was a Saudi Arabian princess who lived in the 20th century and... I kind of don't know really how I found her. Um, y'all know I just go on internet rabbit holes and find people who died young. And this one piqued my interest. I found out while doing research that the pictures of her online that had really attracted me to like find out more about her story. That's the actress that plays her. So <laughs> there's that. And you know how we start every episode is by telling you what happened in the year that this person was born. So Princess Michelle was born in 1958. Have we done 1958 yet? Mm, I don't think so. I know that one of my breaks from studying for the bar exam, I'm going to do a timeline mm. of everyone we've covered so I nice. can see how that they overlap in history. And maybe I'll share that with you guys. We can, you know, put it on our YouTube channel. Remember to check us out on YouTube at Fatal Fortunes, yeah. where you can also see us on video if you're listening, you know, on iTunes. I know half of you listen on iTunes, so you don't see our beautiful faces. Um, I actually clean my act the fuck up. But anyway, in 1958, the West Indies Federation was formed. Sputnik 1 falls to Earth. No. <laughs> Egypt and Syria form the United Arab Republic. That little short-lived jam. Iraq and Jordan unite to form the Arab Federation with King Faisal of Iraq as head of state. So this was a big wave back then. Of course, you know, it's right before 1960, the year of Africa. So these, these forms of government, I think, were really popping then. Castro's army begins its attack on Havana. Revolution. Sputnik 2 disintegrates during re-entry oh, from orbit. Not another one. Montreal Canadiens win the Stanley Cup, beating the Boston Bruins in Game 6. Moving on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Nordic Passport Union is founded, which allows anyone who is a citizen of Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland to travel and reside in another Nordic country without any papers. The Faroe Islands are a part of this union, but they're not a part of the Schengen area, and Greenland and Svalbard are outside of both. The Peronist 
party becomes legal again in Argentina, you know, of Perón and Madonna fame. Famous Argentinian actress Madonna. Wow. The first Cod Wars begin between the UK and Iceland, and they are exactly what they sound like they are. They fight over fish? Yes. What the Uh, fuck? Who who has the right to fish cod in, uh, in in body of water? And finally, Muppets Inc. was founded. Hell yeah. What's the guy who did the Muppets who like also Jim died in a crazy Henson. way? Yes, Jim Henson. Could who on uh, the night before fortune. he died, he said, Ooh, I do not feel good, y'all. And they were like, <laughs> I've been telling you that, dude. And then he died a very painful death several hours later. <laughs> Minisode. Jim Henson's last words. I don't feel so good. No, you don't feel so good. Oh, man. He made some great puppets. Yes, he did. Yeah. But, of course, none of that is what we're here to talk about today. And if you've stuck around, we are so thankful and we're so proud of you. And you know what? We're not even at Princess Michelle yet. I'm so sorry, guys. I added a section about the male guardianship system in Saudi Arabia because I think that the uh, societal systems at play are integral to telling the story of the the short-lived tale of this woman. In Saudi Arabia, then, as with now, there is a male guardianship system that rules the way Saudi women live. This means that once a Saudi woman is born, her father is her legal guardian, and once she's married, her husband becomes her legally documented guardian. And they have these guardians until the day they die. The guardianship system also entails that women cannot be recorded as legal guardians for their children, must gain approval from their husbands before applying for passports, must be accompanied by their guardian's father or husband when traveling, even for educational purposes, and are prohibited from earning a paying job without the approval of their guardians. No doubt these practices are just as strict for members of the royal family growing up in the 1960s and 70s. Um, One of my friends who's from Dubai was saying that one of her Saudi friends, they were having a big, you know, friendly debate at the mall about women's rights. And he said, Mm. they got the right to drive. What more do they want? Wow. Haven't we given you enough? You can drive. You can drive. What what more do you want? You can go wherever you want. As long as I give you You permission to go there. Exactly. (laughs) You can go wherever you... You can drive anywhere with permission. So I wanted to set the stage with that. We don't know much about her early life because uniquely the house of Saud has 5,000 people in it. It's one of the biggest families out there. So it's not like, it's very similar to, you know, back in medieval times where it's like, we're not writing down the birthday of every girl born. She's not anywhere near the throne. Not really relevant. So Princess Michelle, she was the great granddaughter of King Abdulaziz of Saudi Arabia, making her a member of the House of Saud, like I mentioned. As a girl, Michelle requested that she be educated in Beirut, Lebanon, which What I've heard from my Lebanese friends in that time, the 60s and 70s, was actually kind of a lit place to be. Kind of like in a Paris vibe. Allegedly, there is evidence by this time that she had already been married off to someone in her early teens. But the Saudi families kind of tried to rub this stain from their legacy as much as possible. So I'm 
not sure that there's anything English language that's ever going to confirm for me if that is the case. While she was away studying in Beirut, she fell in love with a man named Khalid al-Sher, who was the nephew of the Saudi Arabian ambassador to Lebanon. So they're both, you know, pretty high status people having their young, sexy, fun Paris moment. And they acted like any young couple does living in, you know, a metropolitan area. They did not hide their relationship. Finally, the two were called back to Saudi Arabia upon rumors that they had been meeting privately had begun to circulate everywhere. And something from the movie we're going to talk about later is a lot of the dramatizations. The women say that you can get away with a lot so long as you're discreet. So I think that maybe she has some lack of discretion that um, is being noticed by whoever her guardians are in Beirut and Lebanon or um, back home in Saudi. In July of 1977, she's 19 years old. She's been called back to Saudi Arabia and they are charged with adultery and Michelle, she tried to escape by faking her own drowning, but her and Khalid planned on eloping in London before her, her but before her grandfather had canceled the trip. So they were called back. They were supposed to go to London. He was going to follow to London. They were going to elope, try and take refuge in England. This doesn't work out. She tries to escape by faking her own drowning. Then her and Khalid get recognized at Jeddah Airport by the passport examiner. They try to disguise themselves and flee anyway, but that does not work out. And instead of really handing her to the, to the judicial system, they hand her back to her family. Under Sharia law, a person can be convicted of adultery by testimony of four adult male witnesses to the sex act or by their own admission of guilt stating, I have committed adultery three times. Her family urged her to give up her lover, but instead she said the fateful words in the courtroom, allegedly, and was sentenced to death by her grandfather, Prince Mohammed bin Abdulaziz, for the dishonor that she had brought upon the House of Saud. On July 15th, 1977, Michal and Khalid were both executed publicly. But the way, at least I learned from the movie I'm going to talk about, is that public executions in Saudi Arabia are actually supposed to be public. Like, they're supposed to be like a full town square picnic type of thing. But... They kill them in a parking lot, just like a random parking lot. She was blindfolded and knelt down and shot three times, according to a witness who had actually just been like going by, allegedly, according to the documentary, with his camera at the time, full Rodney King kind of vibe, and just happened upon this execution. Khalid watched this happen, and then he was beheaded, allegedly, by one of Michal's male relatives instead of by a professional executioner. And it took, you know, five, six, seven blows to actually kill him. Oh, God. Yeah. Two Saudi lawyers said later that there was never a trial and she was executed on command of her grandfather. And the reason that Michal's legacy lives on is because there was someone, you know, old British white dude, who took interest in her story right around the time that it happened. So in preparation for the episode, I watched the 1980 film Death of a Princess, directed by Anthony Thomas. This movie is criticized rightfully because it's largely dramatized. So according to legend, the director was at a dinner party in London in the fall of 1977 when he first heard Michelle's story. Thomas went on to conduct dozens of interviews over the next 18 months with individuals who knew of the execution, and he went back and changed everyone's name. Basically, this movie is a recreation of those actual, quote unquote, events with the names and places changed to protect everyone's identity. 
Because you can see just, you know, a simple allegation, depending on your status, can just get yeah. you murdered. And you can watch that movie, too, on YouTube. It is up there in seven or eight parts. Before the film... I, this, the film is the story I basically just told you, so there's not really a reason to get into the film, but Anthony just hears that people are talking about, like, an international human rights crisis that's just not getting any news traction. That's what inspires him to discover why a 19-year-old princess would be executed in a parking lot. So before the film was aired on the BBC... It was aired in a private screening in London and it was held for Saudi officials and they reported back to King Khalid and they were pissed. The Saudi government then threatened to break off dip diplomatic relations and to suspend its exports of oil to England. Allegedly, the Saudis offered $10 million to purchase all the originals of the film and prevent it from being shown. Saudi government denies this, obviously. And when it aired in 1980, 10 million Britons watched. A, yeah. almost a fifth yeah that's like the amount of people that watch the super bowl around the world right <laughs> after they played it in 1980 it was never aired publicly again on um broadcasting airways but the uh british film institute did hold a private screening in 2009 as you may know i have been deeply deeply wounded by the british film institute not saving a copy of my favorite documentary whose lines and tape <laughs> tape quality <laughs> visuals i will just have to hold in my memory so like i said this caused a lot of drama at the time and i can i, I want to say that i can understand both sides of the drama i just i don't want to necessarily only have a eurocentric take on how this is all going down because i get that in western media middle easterners don't really have agency over how they're portrayed so i can get why this would piss them off so much from a position bigger than we're being exposed Yes. Does that sound Absolutely. like I went to college? <laughs> yeah. So basically Saudi Arabia said, we're going to limit the number of visas that we give to British citizens. They told the British ambassador to leave Jeddah, but he did not. Um, I don't think that would ever happen today. Lebanon so got in on it and prevented flight paths of British planes in their airways. Wow. The prime minister of Australia tried to stop the movie from being shown there, but it was. And he called it, Grossly offensive to the Saudi Arabian royal family and government. And the Cattlemen's Union of Australia, duh, of course that's a thing, campaigned against the film as well. And their leader oh said it was, quote, stupid to risk future trade relations, job opportunities, income for a brief period of sick entertainment, end quote, which <laughs> sounds like profits over people to me. The story of women for the last 4,000 years. Yep. In the U.S., there wasn't really the same pressure. Um, only four PBS stations said, we're not going to air this. Mobile Oil, they put an advertisement against the film in um, half a dozen newspapers. And they questioned the director's journalistic integrity. But, you know, a lot of people really ra rallied around Mr. Thomas and said, we believe in... Um, the journalism he did and the work he and the footwork he did to tell this story. It was rebroadcast here in the U.S. in April 2005 for the 25th anniversary of the film. Um, we were seven. Suzanne Abu Talib, the actress who played the princess in the film, who made me enamored, I guess, with this gruesome story, um, be that as it may. She got blacklisted in Egypt for her role in the film. And if you want to see these photos, you can check out our Instagram at Fatal Fortunes. 
she ended up changing her name and the blacklist like kind of backfired because she actually became like a really big star in Egypt. Hmm. And Anthony Thomas rewrites himself as a guy named Christopher Ryder in the movie who's then played by a guy named Paul Freeman. And apparently Spielberg discovered him from watching this movie and that led to him being cast in Raiders of the Lost Ark. What? Damn. One of my favorite movies. One of the interviewees actually compared the constraints women in Saudi Arabia feel to the plight of Palestinians, which I think is really apt. And, you know, human suffering anywhere parallels human suffering everywhere. I encourage everyone to watch Death of a Princess on YouTube, if that exists in your country, um, and form your own opinion and, you know, keep women who are fighting for their freedom around the world in your thoughts wherever you go the rest of the day. I, Nathan and I, we planned this season back in July before there was all of that unrest in Iran. So I think that this story is particularly apt and timely to tell because there are women who are, you know, doing normal things and dying for it around the world, just as they were in 1977, as they are today. So I think that it is just as important to highlight it anyway thank you for listening to this episode of fatal fortunes i think it's going to be our penultimate episode of 2022 mm-hmm. i hope you guys enjoyed it and we will see you in the new year i hope everyone has a happy restful time regardless of what you celebrate um if you have a mom that you like give her a kiss if you don't i will mind my own business Maybe you got a dog, a fish, a snake, a cat. I don't know. But hold the things that you love tight this winter. Remember, on Tuesdays, we talk ghosts. If Al can ever actually upload on Tuesdays. Bye. Bye.